Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode was recorded live at Inside Out Gallery in Traverse City, Michigan in February 2016. In our first story, Christy Snyder tells of how much a blessing and a curse her big boobs have been since she was a teenager. In between the 7th and 8th grade, I'm 13 years old, and my dad is sending me down to Florida to visit my mom. As he kisses me goodbye on the plane trip down, I am 13 and in a training bra. When he picks me up in August, I am a 36C. I absolutely blossomed. My boobs had grown so much and so fast in one summer that I had stretch marks everywhere. And starting eighth grade, I was getting a lot of attention. And They were like a new play toy. Like, I couldn't keep my hands off of them. (laughs) Neither could anybody else. And I, I, I started to associate myself, like, having these big boobs. And it was, I didn't like the, all the attention I was getting. Because I went to high school in the mid-90s. So baby doll tees, there was no way I was going to wear those. Because my boobs are so big, they would pull up the, you know, baby doll even farther. And God forbid it had a print on it. Because, like, you wouldn't be able to see what the design was. Body suits, no way, because I would be falling out of them. When I would uh, sit down at the lunch table and I'd pull a chair up, I'm five foot two, so my boobs would rest, like, right on the table. <laughs> it, it was horrible. Even though the, I think they helped me pass chemistry. Um, <laughs> as I was leaving high school and entering college, I'm still growing, I'm still developing, and I am now a D cup. When I got pregnant with my first child, and I am in the hospital room after giving birth, and I'm trying to nurse for the first time, I have a woman with her hands just all over my boobs. I I hadn't been felt up that much since high school. And she's teaching me how to hold my breast and hold my son at the same time so I wouldn't suffocate him while he was eating. Could you imagine fucking killing your kid with your boobs? I mean, it was such a scary thought. Shortly after I had my daughter and I was done nursing her, trying to dry my breasts up, I had to literally tape them down. So every day getting ready for work, I had to, like, tape them, wear a tight sports bra. It was like a pro athlete getting ready for a game. Like, pulling it down. And it was, it was horrible. It was, it, and they were so large. As I'm trying to burp my children, I just gave up. There was no way I could, like, get them over my boobs. So I just learned to put them over my lap and start whacking their backs. <laughs> I am a... I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. So we stand. We stand all day long. And I was starting to get an immense amount of pain in my lower back. I'm seeing some nodding. I was noticing that I was getting indentations in my shoulders. 
from my bra. I am now a 42 double D. I am five foot two. I was all boobs. I started seeing a chiropractor for my, for my back. And after having that first x-ray, we noticed that I had multiple bone spurs and my spine was starting to look like one of those slippery when wet road signs. I was starting to get the grandmother's hump at 27 years old because I had been constantly trying to not show my boobs. I was also starting to get early signs of osteoporosis. After talking with a chiropractor, my medical doctor, my husband at the time, and my insurance company, we realized that it was time to get a breast reduction. The first time you walk into a cosmetic surgeon's office in the waiting room, you don't realize the things that they can nip and tuck and suck. You really start to question your body image. And I made the decision to, after being in there, which was scary as hell, to go ahead and get a reduction. Even though they were like a part of me, they were a part of my identity. I was always Christy with the big boobs. They had called me Christy and twins. Remember that Bud Light commercial? Yeah. <sighs> so it is really hard to go and tell people that you're going to get a breast reduction because women look at you like, are you crazy? I would love to have boobs your size. Can we do a transplant? I'll lay right next to you. They can cut them off you and put them onto me. Men actually asked me if I had gotten permission from my husband. Good thing he was an ass man at the time. <laughs> when I went in and told my work that I was getting a breast reduction, I told my students that I was going to be out of work because I was having surgery for my back, which is technically true. But I would have to go and be out of work for almost two weeks while I was recovering. So I scheduled my surgery right around spring break so I could use, I mean, I'm sorry, Christmas break, so I could use the holiday season to recover. When you get a breast reduction, they're so comfortable now, I can just keep touching them. Um, they look at your breasts like a clock, like the face of a clock. And you start at 12 o'clock, and they cut down to 6, and then they make an incision down. And they start at 12 o'clock, and they go counterclockwise to 6. And they remove your nipple, and they put it on the same plate that has all the surgical tools. It was one of the most painful things I have ever done. Apparently, when they were wheeling me from recovery into my room where I was going to have to stay overnight so they could monitor my pain levels, I was grabbing random people's hands, going, feel them, they're so small. <laughs> It was like high school all over again. No. Um, and so the recovery from my boob job was so, it was difficult because I couldn't lift my hands any higher than this. So washing my hair was, it was difficult for two weeks. 
the first time I had taken off my shirt and stared in the mirror. There are, there's tape. They, well, because they had to tape my nipples back on. And you can't take the tape off. You just, if you've ever had surgery, you know you have to let the tape naturally come off. So I looked like Franken-boobies for about three, four weeks. That spring, after I had started to finally heal, I was so excited to buy my first shirt that I did not have to wear a bra for. And in the infamous words from Seinfeld, they are real and they are spectacular. <laughs> Thank you. In our next story, after driving through a blizzard to attend to a birth as a doula, Janelle Bowers has to think quickly through some major complications. So, there was a night in early January of 2014, and I don't know if you remember that winter, but that was the winter that was incredibly snowy. Um, We had about 40 days of snowfall straight. And I was living in a, in a farmhouse in Leelanau County at the time. Um, it's this beautiful piece of land that used to house what was the Solar Commune. I don't know if anybody has been around here long enough to, to remember that. Um, it's, the commune's long gone, but uh, some friends lived there, and they were kind enough to take me and my children in um, after I was recovering from a divorce. And when we moved there in the fall... It was like this place of magic, right? Like these expansive meadows with willow tree-lined ponds and hardwood forests in the back, and we would have sweat lodges and, and cedar swamps. But suddenly, in the middle of January, it felt like a cold, snow-laden death grip. <laughs> I was working as a waitress at the time and trying to make a living as a doula, which is someone who helps women when they're giving birth. And my nerves started to sort of fray at a certain point when shoveling my shitty white minivan with bald tires out at the unbelievably long driveway at 5 o'clock in the morning to load my infant and my 3-year-old, it all started to feel like a lot. And so it Two o'clock in the morning when a client of mine who lived in Petoskey, a contract that I had signed before I moved to Leelanau County, and we had the snowiest record on, in history uh, for the last 30 years or whatever, um, called me to tell me that her water had broken two weeks early. I found myself driving in a whiteout snowstorm in a 1990s Jeep with a racing canoe strapped to the top of it. <laughs> The funny thing about a drive in a whiteout snowstorm from, from Leelanau County to Petoskey is it takes a really long time. <laughs> and so uh, I had a lot of time to think. And I, I was just going, why am I doing this? I'm getting up in the middle of the night and I'm leaving my children for an unknown amount of time to, to go and support another woman when I desperately need support. And what is my place in this world of birth? How do I... How do I justify doing this? And by the time that I had pulled into that hospital, I had resolved myself to thinking, 
I don't have a place in this world. It's just not where I need to be right now. I'm going to go in and I'm going to be with my client. I'm going to be there with Sarah as she births her baby. And then I'm going to walk away from this. But I grabbed my bag and I went in and Sarah was this beautiful woman. She taught yoga. She was a, um, an avid meditator. And she had this dejected look on her face. She looked completely heartbroken. She had been in what felt like really good productive labor for a number of hours, but the nurses told her, you're only at two centimeters, it's gonna be a really long time. And they didn't even call the doctor in yet. So Sarah was practicing something called hypnobirthing, which is like this birthing method where you like self-hypnotize yourself, and you get all into your body, and you get all groovy about it, and help your baby out. But between that and the doula and the essential oils that I brought and the little LED candles and the soft music that I put on and the bath that I put her in, the nurses were over all of our hippie shit. Like, they were not <laughs> into what the fuck we were doing at all. Uh, so... I had, gotten, I had gotten Sarah in the bath and, and massaged her, and she was really going again. She was really into her body. She was, she was just hypnotizing the shit out of herself. <laughs> and, and then at a certain point, she, she started to show these signs of transition, and anybody that's had a baby knows what this is. It's this sort of like magical place in birth where you, your, your energy shifts and you get those last couple of centimeters of dilation. And what sort of happens is that women can kind of look like caged animals a little bit. Like their face is like, oh, fuck this. I can't, I can't do this. And she gives me that look and she's like, I can't. I'm only at two centimeters. I can't, I can't do this. And her legs are shaking. And I notice that her tailbone is starting to poke out. And I say, Sarah, you're going to be just fine. You're doing this. You feel like this because your baby is really close to being born. To which her and her husband look at me as though I'm either totally insane or like employing some magical thinking. It's been 45 minutes. Like, what are you talking about? So I go and I tell the nurse the same thing. And she gives me the same look like, uh-huh, lady, with your fucking voodoo and your sage you got going on in there. This baby is not being born yet. And she says, uh, sure, I'll be in when I can. So I come back in, and Sarah's now on the toilet. She says, I just really have to go to the bathroom. And I say, Sarah, you don't have to go to the bathroom. Your baby is being born. To which they look at me like I'm crazy again. And so I go, and I get the nurse. And the nurse comes and looks at, lifts up her gown and goes, oh, God, she's crowning. We're crowning. There's crowning. Suddenly, like, everything goes crazy because there's no doctor there, and you, you can't have a baby without a doctor, right? That's, that's not possible. So, like, one nurse comes in. She's, she's got the phone, and she's yelling, crowding, crowding, like, hanging it up, and everybody's freaking out, and the woman's in the bathroom. She's sitting on the toilet, and rather than just, like, putting a pad there and letting her squat and do what's obviously been working really well, they convince her husband to pick her up and carry her to a bed with a baby, like halfway, a baby's head, halfway born. And they're screaming, like everybody's screaming, and they're, they don't know what's going on. As soon as she gets to the bed, the baby's head is born. Baby's very large head is born. And then the next contraction comes, and the baby sticks and doesn't move. It's called shoulder dystocia. 
baby's shoulders get stuck in the pelvis. A condition which med Western medicine deals with by reaching in and getting traction on the armpit and putting pressure on the collarbone to break it and pull the baby free. And I see this nurse reaching in and pushing with both hands on this baby's collarbone. Midwives deal with this by flipping a woman over onto her hands and knees, opening the pelvic outlet, and allowing the baby to come through. And I am pleading. I'm watching this baby's face turn blue and blue, and they're screaming at her to push. She has no idea what's going on. And I'm saying, please, turn her over onto her hands and knees. Turn her over on her hands and knees. Turn her over on her hands and knees, and they won't listen to me, and they're trying frantically to bake, break this baby's collarbone. And they're not getting anywhere. And time suspends, and I grab my client's face, and I say, Sarah, your baby's shoulders are stuck, and it will die if you do not flip over onto your hands and knees right now. And she did. Like in a moment of superhuman feat, she flipped over and the baby was born in 10 seconds. Whole and unharmed. And the nurses gave me a look like they wanted to punch me for circumventing their authority in this place. And the doctor came in about 10 minutes later, disheveled because he had been asleep. And he said, huh, I've never seen a shoulder dystocia baby born without a broken clavicle before. He goes, that's a new one. I'll have to add it to my, to my, my toolbox. And everybody was fine. And the baby was perfect. And the doctor later told my client that he had never seen one born without a broken clavicle and that normally they suffer permanent nerve damage, if not worse. And so as I got back into that 1990s Jeep with the racing canoe strapped to the top of it and the blizzard that was still going on, I didn't know how I could walk away from birth, right? It like felt like I was supposed, I felt like I had saved a baby's life or at least a nerve, something. And I still struggle with it. And stories like that bring me back to this place of needing to be in that room and help, help serve. In our next story, Catherine Henning Callison's frequent headaches are getting worse, but no one is taking her seriously. I've always been a quite sickly person, uh, whether it's, you know, just getting colds a lot. It's a very, I identify strongly with Tiny Tim. Um, unfortunately, I also have uh, anxiety and depression issues. I, I have mental illness issues, which are not easy for people to see and are often um, looked down upon. And when you combine the two, it's very easy still in this stage of age, day in age, for doctors to discount uh, people with mental illnesses' complaints as 
all in their head, just, you know, part of their inability to cope, part of their inability to deal with stress. It's so easy still for our medical community to tell people with mental illness that that's the only thing wrong with them. And I, um, given these handicaps, depression and anxiety, was all too eager to believe them. Even after I had a CAT scan and MRI reveal that I had a tumor in my skull and that every migraine I had, three to four a week at least, started right where that uh, tumor was, I believed the doctors eventually when they said, it's just got nothing to do with it. It's stress. It's all in your head. It was immensely painful. And um, we, we, we live in a land where if you try hard enough, if you eat right, if you exercise, if you make the right choices and meditate, you can overcome anything. And so as I lost friendships, romantic relationships, jobs that were so important to me, it only made the anxiety and depression worse. And then I would think, I deserve this because I'm just not trying hard enough. It got to the point where, whether through apathy or depression, I stopped taking most of the medication that I had been prescribed to deal with the symptoms of my stress, mind you, not actual symptoms of a physical illness. Um, until finally one day a friend called and, and asked me how I was doing to check in and I said, well, I can't really see out of my right eye anymore. The vision's just gone, you don't get it. She's like, why are you on the phone with me from your house and not at the ER or seeking some help of some sort? And I just explained to her, because it's nothing. It's, they'll tell me to go see a neurologist, I will, and they'll tell me it's nothing, and this will be one more manifestation of my weakness that I will have to live with. Luckily, sounder minds prevailed, hers, <laughs> and I went to the ER and they found that the tumor had grown and was protruding into my ocular cavity. Within weeks, I was down at Ann Arbor and having my um, head cut open literally from ear to ear and this tumor removed from my skull. I think when people go through an illness or a chronic illness, cancer, something like that, uh, they tend to walk away with new perspective and lessons learned, but those lessons take time to implant because you're in, in the middle of a crisis. You know, it's, it's upon reflection that those, that those lessons are learned. And so I, I didn't really know what I had taken from this long period of illness until I got pregnant two months after the surgery because why wouldn't I? That's brilliant. <laughs> if there's one thing my body wanted to do after years of struggling to just survive, it was to bring another life into the world. But regardless, um, things happen in their time. So I, understandably, having had this physical ailment for so long, developed a somewhat 
even though I bitched a lot, a high tolerance for pain. And so when I was in labor, I called my doctor and told her, Ooh, he's coming, he's coming. And she said, no, honey, she's, he's not. You wouldn't be able to talk through the pain if he was coming. It's in your head. <laughs> and luckily, I had learned what remains the most important lesson that I have learned so far. I trusted myself. I trusted myself enough to tell my partner to take me to the hospital. And I walked in, I waddled in, which of course was also not possible if I was close to giving birth, um, to the point where they were out of wheelchairs, so they put me on an office chair just to placate me, <laughs> like kept hitting me into the sides of the hallway as they wheeled me back, and I kept saying, the baby's coming, and you know, it was all cool your jets, lady. This is, <laughs> you've got a lot of time. Um, I was eight, eight centimeters dilated, and the baby met us within three pushes, within, I think I was there 45 minutes at the hospital. Um, and I'm so thankful that I have had two major medical um, events happen to reinforce that most important lesson. And it continues to be my goal to trust myself enough and be present enough in my own skin to know what's going on with myself and, and with friends as well, because it really is all in our head. Next, Matt Soderquist tells of how the woman he was dating had a host of medical problems and, it seems, a big secret. We didn't immediately go to the hospital. It would be about three weeks before we would sit in the emergency room. I first met Pat Patricia through a coworker. She was in graduate school, and I'd, she had been. And she set me up on a date with her. She worked in the same field, and she had just recently purchased a home. Stable, I thought. That's good. The night before our first date, my coworker brought me into her office and she said, I gotta tell you something. I thought Patricia had maybe changed her mind about going out on a date with me and was having second thoughts. Instead, my coworker explained that Patricia was sick. She had a brain tumor. Cancer, she said. I just want you to know what you're getting into before anything gets serious, she told me. Wow, okay, I thought. Um, what am I walking into? I mean, what would it say about the kind of person I am if I didn't go out on a date with her? I mean, it's not like we're getting married. So our first date went great. We laughed, we drank, we had dinner. I would drop little hints here and there about my own health issues or the cancer treatment that my dad had been through. She didn't reveal her cancer diagnosis until the third date. We'd been out to a brewery and on the way home, she started shivering pretty violently. And then the shivering turned to shaking. I asked her if we needed to go to the hospital, and she said no. And about a minute later, she passed out. A couple minutes later, when she woke up, I told her that she needed to tell me what to do in those kinds of situations. So she explained her cancer diagnosis to me. 
she had what was called a GBM or a glioblastoma. And she explained that there was two different GBMs, a primary or de novo, and a secondary, which is what she had, but still a very aggressive form of brain cancer. They tend to be found in people who are 45 and younger, and common symptoms are headache, nausea, drowsiness, and seizures. She had been to treatment before, but she said she didn't like the way that they were treating her, and so she wanted to seek out some other options, but she still hadn't, which had led us to where we were now. Now, as a social worker, I tend to be very solution-focused, so I did a little research. I found all the cancer treatment centers across America that accepted her health insurance. I went online, ordered the Livestrong guidebook that guides cancer patients through the whole healthcare system. I ordered about 100 of those Livestrong wristbands, and I overnighted a Livestrong shirt to her. This was before the whole doping scandal admission, so <laughs> no judging me. I love Lance. But the seizures became more frequent. And instead of one a night, they'd be three, four, or one time there was five seizures in one evening. On a Wednesday morning, her close friend and her coworker stopped into our office. She said she couldn't stand to watch her friend do this anymore. Just such a lackadaisical attitude to her cancer. Her coworker had watched her own father recently pass away from pancreatic cancer, and she wasn't willing to sit around and watch another friend die. So we concocted a plan for an intervention. Basically, if she didn't agree to go to treatment, we were just going to take some duct tape, duct tape her hands and her feet behind her back, throw her in the car, and bring her down to the hospital. But luckily, she agreed to go. I took the rest of the week off work. I went and picked her up. We packed for the week, not knowing how long we'd be. On our way out of town, I stopped into the bank, get some cash, and I told her it would probably be a good idea if you told your doctor that you were on the way. And so she called, and she was just wrapping up the conversation when I came out from the bank. They told me to go to the nearest ER, not down to Grand Rapids, where her doctor had been, and go from there. So when we arrived in the ER, we were seen pretty quickly in the triage. Patricia was explaining her diagnosis, all the symptoms, the treatment she had had up to that point. I was telling the nurse about how, you know, just two or three weeks ago, the seizures were one, and now she was having four or five in one evening. They put us in a room. Doctors came in. They took all the information about her oncologist from downstate. And then he came back in about 15 minutes later, and he said, I'm having a little trouble getting a hold of the doctor downstate. Do you have any contact information for him? And she said, that's why I left them. They were terrible at being organized in their treatment. That's why I stopped going with them. I don't even want to deal with them anymore. So the doctor left and said he'd search some more. And a few minutes later, the nurse came back in, and she said, I just want to double check. We're still not having any luck. And then it came to me. I said, we just called them. When I was in the bank, you were talking to them on the phone. I said, give me your phone. I'll go through your phone and give them the phone number. And when I looked at the phone, all the numbers had been deleted. The nurse and I looked at each other and looked at Patricia, and the nurse said she would be right back. Things just weren't adding up. I said, what's going on? 
Patricia handed me her keys, and she said, here, take them, leave. I understand if you don't ever want to talk to me again. She explained that for the past couple of months, she was getting extremely overwhelmed at work. And she thought that if she faked a cancer diagnosis, that maybe they'd give her a little less work. So you don't have a brain tumor? No, she said. What about the seizures? The seizures were real. She explained that she didn't expect everybody to find out that she had faked cancer. And so once it leaked out, she had started having these panic attacks, which were what the seizures were. I was really confused. I was angry. I was sad. I was happy that she wasn't dying. I also felt very betrayed that she had been lying. I told her I wasn't going to leave and that I had the next two days off work and it was only one o'clock on a Wednesday, so at worst I had about two and a half days to drink heavily. <laughs> so I told her, considering that she didn't have brain, a brain tumor, I thought that, I was, that she was more than capable of driving me, which is even an added bonus. So I said we'd go to lunch while I pondered our next move over a few Killians. So I talked to the nurse in the hallway. I explained that things weren't quite as they appeared. They talked to Patricia alone. They offered us a list of psychiatrists for follow-up. Over beers, I concocted a plan in which we would get all of our mutual friends intoxicated before we broke the news to them. So I text our friend, uh, things are much different than we first thought. Bring beer and meet us at five. After a couple hours of drinking, we all sat in the dining room table. Our friends hung on our every word. When we described that Patricia did not have a brain tumor, everybody started breaking down crying. When we told them that it had all been a lie, they cried even harder. The next morning, I packed my things and Patricia gave me the Live Strong shirt that I had given her back. And a couple of years ago, I heard that she had completed her graduate degree in counseling and that she'd been offered a position counseling others with mental health issues. Ironic, I thought. Stable. That's good. <laughs> In this next story, after her father fell into a coma, Nancy Baker and her family learn a lot more about him than they thought they knew. So, when I was five, my dad lugged home an old oak porch swing that he had rescued. At dinner, he literally said, this guy had a bonfire going on his lawn and was throwing things into it, and this was the thing he was about to throw into it, and I just couldn't let him burn this. It's a perfectly good old porch swing. But at the time, we lived in a suburban community outside of Chicago, but he was always doing really impractical things like this that connected him to his rural Michigan roots, where he grew up um, in a very large and very poor family on the shores of Lake St. Clair. And so, for example, one summer, to our utter horror, he announced um, that he was going to create a worm farm in our backyard. 
But he was a workaholic and he didn't even fish anymore, so that didn't make sense. But we knew that the wooden box of night crawlers up against our house um, reminded him that he once sold bait and built shanties and dragged them out onto the ice um, to help his parents through some lean times that they had. Um, it was just pure nostalgia. And he also always planted a large garden in our, in our backyard, but he didn't grow flowers or anything trivial like that that we might enjoy. He wanted the more practical, serious edibles like cabbage and pole beans and sage. And he was always really perplexed that most of these things were not consumed by his wife and children. And I um, really kind of pissed him off because I did not appreciate the radishes that he tucked into my um, Partridge family lunchbox when I was in high school, like those were, or grade school. They were never eaten. Um, so although the swing was lovely. It was just an entirely impractical thing because in our sort of soulless suburban townhouse, it lacked all architectural character and it certainly lacked a porch. But the, the swing reminded him of his sort of drafty tumble-down lake cottage that he had grown up in. So over the years, we moved a lot. And my dad's profession combined with his very prickly temperament and his utter lack of respect for every boss that he ever had necessitated frequent job changes. And with every relocation, my mom protested that this porchless swing, as she started to call it, was a ridiculous thing to load onto the back of a truck and take with us. But my dad was resolute, and the swing always found its way onto the moving truck. So the sight of this swing stored in our garage or in our basement, it always made me smile because it represented a side of my dad that was rarely evident. Um, it was sort of a small, flawed, endearing act, this rescuing of this condemned thing um, in an otherwise like, really intense and almost utterly unlovable man. In the, in the early 1950s, the Algonac newspaper once uh, wrote an article about my dad his senior year of high school, along with other people on the football team, where he happened to be the co-captain. He was also um, National Honor Society president and a marching band member. I don't even know how you can be in marching band and on the football team at the same time. And he was in a school play. It was a very small high school. I think everyone multitasked. And so the article described his athletic style as, I quote, rough, tough, fast, and smart. And that's exactly the father that I remember. Um, he had the strongest work ethic of anyone I had ever known. Um, he was rough on anyone that he perceived to be lazy. He was tough to please and profoundly disappointed in things like A minuses when an A was clearly earnable. And he was fast to note and correct any kind of childish behavior. He was incredibly smart but he usually used his intellect to simply make other people in the room just feel stupid. But that porch swing, that was a lovely, illogical, silly thing that he had done. Now, by the time I started college, the swing had moved four times, and my father was finally offered an amazing job where he was hired to go down and fix a big company, their southern division in Florida. And it was a really big step. And it would mean putting our Chicago area home on the market. And my mother, who was weary of travel and kind of wary of this opportunity, said, listen, you go down there, get a small apartment, 
see if this really works out to what we think it will be, and I'll put the house on the market and follow you a few months later. So this was just after my freshman year of college, and I was home for the summer, and I was working a summer job. When the call came, the voice on the other end of the phone said, your father didn't show up to work this morning, as he usually does at 7 in the morning, and we found him unconscious in his apartment. He's been transported to a local Jacksonville hospital, and um, the EMTs believe that he's had a brain aneurysm. My mom and my older brother quickly flew down to Florida immediately to be by his side where he lay in a coma. I, however, stayed in Chicago, and as my father's true child, I went right back to work the next day. After all, it was a really good job I had. I needed the money, and they would have replaced me if I had just stayed home. And in those pre-cell phone, no internet days, someone had to stay close to home and actually um, deliver documents to the lawyer's office in case my father didn't wake up from the coma, go talk to the insurance people, messenger things down to Florida to my mother, and then stay home at night and disseminate information to relatives who are waiting to find out what the latest update was. So I figured I should at least work while I waited to do all of these things. I got that inevitable final call from my mom 10 days after the first one had come. She and my brother came home from Jacksonville and arrangements were made. But I noticed that my mother didn't seem sad so much as pissed, and my brother seemed sort of ambivalent. And I found out that this was because while staying at my dad's temporary apartment in Jacksonville, a small Spartan apartment that my dad never thought any of us would ever see, my mother had found evidence that he had been having an affair with a woman down there for months. They had worked together in the same Florida office for a short time, but then the woman had transferred out to the Texas branch of the company, but the affair continued. And in 1980, in a very paper-full world, his transgression left a prolific and obvious trail. A canceled check to her teenage son's graduation, an old boarding pass for a flight to Dallas, receipts, letters, it was all there. And he, the one who could not abide imperfection and dishonesty in anyone, had constructed this parallel existence a thousand miles away from us. My mom found the damning details right away, the first night she got there. And she had to go to the ICU every day for 10 days, knowing. She said that the first couple of nights, the phone would ring in his apartment, and the caller would hang up when my mom answered. On the third night, though, my mom lifted the receiver, and a woman's voice shakily inquired, who is this? But my mother was locked and loaded. No, who are you, she said, and the line went dead, and the call stopped. Now, I've often wondered what my mother was thinking every day when she went to his bedside and listened to the monitor softly beeping. I imagine that casually she considered moving the leg of her chair onto one of his air hoses. <laughs> Maybe mistakenly leaning on a switch or loosening some kind of important-looking plug. And she confessed that she quietly hated him as she held her vigil, vigil and feigned sorrow as solemn doctors came in and updated her on his worsening condition. So in the end, relief rather than grief is what she packed and brought back to Chicago. Now, a few years later, early in my marriage, a drunken boss of mine made a sloppy pass at me as we shared a cab back to a hotel during an out-of-town business trip. And I angrily rebuffed his advance and very dramatically admonished him, saying, 
that I have few spiritual certainties and convictions in this life, but I'm fairly certain that if there is a God, he has reserved a special place in hell for people who are disloyal to their spouses. Now, it doesn't take you know, a psychologist to know where that was coming from. But I really don't feel that way now. It's taken me decades to realize the people are not just one score on a scale somewhere between serial killer and saint. And that really very few of us are in any position to be so self-righteous. And I now believe that most people are better than the collection of mistakes that they've made. My dad was actually just an amalgam, just like all of us. He was just a guy who loved any lake, smoked two packs of L&Ms every day, taught me old songs like Paddlin' Madeline Home, suffered blinding episodes of road rage, loved all dogs, and did not think women should be in charge of anything. <laughs> he was not an entirely clear thinker, solid father, or loyal husband. But, you know, when someone dies at the age of 48, I don't think they've had time to become really good at anything. So I inherited that porch swing, and now I proudly had it at my little first home. The way some people insist on updated kitchens and attached garages from the realtor, I said, I do not want to look at a house that doesn't have a porch. And later, when I sold that first home, the buyer asked for the swing in the contract, but my reply was easy and swift with a firm no. The swing would be moved again to my new house. And you know, it hangs there now, three seasons each year. And I love it as it slowly sways under the weight of a family member or empty in a cool evening breeze. For it was, and still is, and will always be the best part of something that was rescued. Thank you. In the final story of this show, Dave Murphy stops at his own home to relax during a very stressful time in his life, but relaxation was not in the cards that day. The fire chief said, write everything down that you can remember, and we'll talk about it in the morning. And then he left. And before I began writing, I knew I had to call my wife because I was standing in front of the home that we had owned for 25 years that was totaled by a fire. And uh, it's not that I'm afraid of my wife, but <laughs> I'd, I'd never had that conversation before where you call up and say, I burned down the house. <laughs> so um, I knew she was in meetings all day and I'd have to have her paged out. And um, we, we had a code, I didn't do that unless it was a disaster. So she was going to come to the phone upset, and uh, fortunately, she asked the right questions. She said, did something happen to you? And I said, no, I'm okay. And she said, did something happen to your mother? And she was asking because uh, we were caregiving for my mother. And I, I said, no, she's okay too. And she said, well, what, what is going on? And I said, um, you know how you've been wanting to remodel? <laughs> um, so I'm going to stop there for a moment and just put the pause on, uh, on that conversation, but I want to return to it. Um, to just set up what was happening in our lives at that point in time, the fire took place on July 11th, 2013. And if we back up about 13 or 14 months, that's when uh, 
a situation arose that I fondly refer to as the unholy convergence. Um, I had a medical condition that was treatable but complicated, and it did not go well at all. Uh, what should have been a procedure or two turned into 14 surgeries and procedures over the course of the next year. And I got into really, really rough shape. During the middle of that medical nightmare, my mother began calling us uh, at 2 and 3 in the morning, saying that she was out on the road looking for her dog. And it's bad enough that your 90-year-old mother may be out on the road, but the worst part was that her dog had died 10 years earlier. So she could look all she wanted. She wasn't going to find that damn dog. And that was uh, the sign that the dementia that we knew was there was really starting to advance. We had purchased the home for her 100 feet away from us about 20 years earlier. And so she'd been living there all that time independently. Uh, she had some health problems emerging. And that phone call was the final signal. We had to consolidate homes. And the line about remodeling is partly a joke, but we actually had been considering what to do with our home to accommodate her. So before my medical mess began, we had been working with an architect and a builder. And we had been considering everything from a substantial remodel to even a teardown, which I did not want to do. But we needed to do something to bring us together. And that all went to the wayside when the health mess broke out. So now we have no plans. And if you're very, very sick, the last thing you want to get into is rebuilding or a major building project. So that was put on the shelf. But now we had to do something with my mother. So we decided to move in with her. And um, she was at a stage where she really didn't know that we had moved in. Uh, we were there more. She kept waiting for us to go home every night, um, which we wish we could have done. So what we did is we brought our bed over. And we, I have a home office, so we brought my office supplies over. And that was it. I showered and dressed at our old house every day. Um, my wife had some seasonal clothes with her, but we were essentially living out of two homes. So that took us, um, that's the way we lived uh, up until the point of the fire. And one month before the fire occurred, I actually had another surgery. This was an elective surgery. I have congenitally deformed hips. So I had to have a hip replacement, and it had also gotten into really rough shape with a delay. I was planning on having the hip surgery the year before, but had to delay it with everything else that had gone wrong. So uh, now I had my 15th surgery in uh, about a 14-month period. And uh, I was in really bad shape by the time that was over with. Uh, we were at the beginning of June 2013, about six weeks before the fire. And I kind of collapsed. I had a month uh, uh, that I did nothing but rehab, uh, keep my mother out of trouble, and sleep. And that's pretty much all that went on for the month of June. I was uh, released to drive again at the start of July, and the appointments with my mother started up again. We had put everything on hold for a while with her, and she had seven specialists. She had about five clinics a month uh, dealing with different sorts of blood work and testing. And we were beginning to do that again. She also had vascular wounds. She had congestive heart failure. So we had just begun wound treatment. My mother was a sweet lady. She um, was a wonderful person before and even after the worst of the dementia. But right in the middle, 
where she was still fighting for control. That's where we were at when the fire occurred. Uh, she knew things were falling apart, but she didn't know why. So it was a really rough stretch. In fact, the day of the fire was the roughest day ever with her. We were battling over getting her out of the house to an appointment. She was balking. She was crying. She was resisting. That had never happened before, and it never happened again at that level. So um, I gave up. I said, we'll cancel the appointment. Um, she sat down in her chair, her favorite chair, and I headed back to our house. It was sanctuary. And I brought our dog with us, and I want to emphasize it was our dog, not the dog that she thought she owned. <laughs> so I had our dog with us, and, or with me, and I threw some wash in the machine, and uh, I headed into the living room, and our dog was in a sunny area uh, that she loved to get into, and it had literally been a year since I'd last seen her in that position. And it was delightful to see her there again. And I, I talked to her, and I said, I agree with you. This is a wonderful house, just the way it is. We don't need to change a thing. Why can't we get our lives back? And um, our dog didn't listen to me either, just like my mother. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a nice moment. Uh, I decided I needed to get the dog back to my mother. She was always, our dog was always a calming factor for my mother. So uh, I brought her back, put her in my mother's lap. Uh, my mother was doing a little better by then. I headed back to the house to throw the uh, clothes into the dryer. And um, after I did that, I went into our kitchen area where we had mounds of my medical bills and my mother's medical bills. I'd been paying the bills, but I hadn't been sorting and balancing receipts. So I tried to get into that. And uh, in the middle of this mess, I found some incense. We don't burn incense, but three years earlier, we had been in a Native American village, and it was kind of a guilt purchase. It was a great little store. We hadn't bought much, and at the last second, I grabbed this package of incense and uh, put a little bit more money into uh, their payday. So uh, I started to look at the incense. It hadn't been used, and it had some nice Native American symbols on it. And it had just a few lines of English. And the lines were, when life overwhelms, as the smoke drifts skyward, answers are revealed. And so I laughed. I laughed hard. Not blasphemously, but, but uh, I thought if anybody needs an answer, I do. So I opened the stuff up. I rummaged through a drawer. I found a lighter, lit the stuff. Uh, it had been a cold night. It was July. But it had been a cold night the night before in northern Michigan. So I had the house entirely closed up. The smoke was more than I had expected. Uh, so I cupped the ember. There was a small red ember that formed. And I cupped it and I carried it outside. And I planted it well away from the house. I looked at it for a few minutes. The day was turning out beautiful. It had been cold and rainy. Now it was the glorious northern Michigan days, blue skies, northwest wind. And so I really did try to take a moment to... Uh, to appreciate it. And then I headed back to my mother one more time. And um, she was doing okay. And uh, I spent a few minutes there, did some email, made a few calls. I headed back to our house to get the clothes out of the dryer. And I opened up the door, and a black plume of smoke hit me. And it was the most ungodly volume of smoke I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, my momentum had carried me in the house. But I just recoiled and stepped out. I was hacking. I couldn't see. Um, it was just noxious smoke. And so I uh, recovered for a, a second. I, I figured it, my mind was racing for an answer. 
I assumed it was the dryer. I assumed it was a dryer vent fire. So I made my way in by feel and memory, and I got to the dryer. I opened it up, expecting more smoke to pour out. It didn't. And uh, the dryer turned off, and now I was completely confused. I stepped into the hallway, and I saw a ball of flame that was floating in the air. And I could see nothing else. It was blackness, but I could see, make out this ball of flame. So I tried to make my way to it, and, and now I'm telling myself, well, it's kind of above where the dryer vent is in the crawl space. It, it still must be a dryer vent fire. So I headed back outside, got my breath, came back in looking for the fire extinguisher, and all of a sudden I'm stepping on things. And it made no sense. Nothing should have been on the floor. What we found out later was that the cabinets collapsed, so all the dishes were there, and I was stumbling over them. Keep in mind, I had a one-month-old hip. And so I was spinning around. I was lost, and uh, I didn't know where I was. And uh, it was the fireball that I saw that oriented me to where I actually was in the house and allowed me to get out. So I came to my senses. I got back to the house. I didn't have a cell phone with me. I made the call. Um, my mother's wrestling with me now. She wants to come over to put out the fire. <laughs> and so the next few minutes are chaos as uh, the emergency responders are show showing up. My mother is repeatedly coming outside. She can't walk without a walker or a cane, but she's going without either, trying to get across the lawn. And so I'm repeatedly putting her back in. The responders are saying this is an unbelievably hot fire. There's hardly any flames, and it's because the house was closed up. We think it might blow. And so they're chasing people away who are stopping to look. And um, I thought I was going to kill the firefighters. Um, they fortunately got in, got the fire out, um, and then they started beating the hell out of the house, knocking out windows, chasing flames that had been going up behind walls. And it was a couple hours, I assume. I can't remember that uh, it took for them to do this. And then I had the conversation with the fire chief where he told me to write everything down. I had the conversation with my wife. And what I'd like to share with you now is that I, I've told this story to a good number of people, and each time I tell it, not each time, but most of the time when I tell it, there's a thoughtful response that goes something like that incense. You, you know, you, you uh, lit it, you were looking for an answer, and um, you got it. You, you know, you didn't know what to do with your home. And, and although I've appreciated that perspective, <laughs> I don't quite agree. And uh, I, I should add this to the mix, too. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll back it up just a bit. The fire chief came back to see me the next day, and we went into the house, and uh, he said, what kind of lighter did you use? And I said, how'd you know I used a lighter? And he said, because it exploded. Uh, that was the cause of the fire. And uh, he went through the forensics of it, and uh, we're sure that's what occurred. And the bizarre part is that the lighter had been tossed into our yard. Um, I didn't buy it. It was a cheap, no-name lighter, and it was full of butane, and I'm a recycler. So I didn't want to throw it away. So I kept the stupid thing, and then it cost us our house. So as I get these responses of it's something metaphysical, you had this transcendent moment in which the smoke delivered your answer, what, what I prefer to explain is that what it actually was was a Category 5 shitstorm. If there are shit quakes, <laughs> this registered an 8.3 on the shit McGrath. 
and it's important for you to know that an 8.3 on the shipment graph is actually 22 times more powerful than a 6.3 because there's an exponential logarithmic function to shit that, <laughs> that you just have to know there was a lot more going on than just a 6.3. If our lives could have been encapsulated as the breed of a dog, we would have been a shih tzu. <laughs> if the Pope had come along to deliver a blessing, he would have gone, holy shit. <laughs> So I think you get my point um, that I believe in randomness by and large. It's not what events are tossed at us in life because we all get these things. It was just unusual that they all happened at once. What's more important is how we respond to these moments in life, and that's where I want to come back to the conversation with my wife. Um, after asking the two perfect questions, are you okay? Yes. Is my mother okay? Yes. I then actually explained what had happened, that I had totaled our house in the fire, and she didn't believe me. Um, and I went on to explain that after what the last year had been about, I didn't know if I could take much more of this. I didn't know what was going on in our lives. I remember saying, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry. There was a long pause, and then she said, as long as you're okay, we're okay. And that, to me, is the real lesson here, is how we respond. And as long as someone can respond like that with understanding and love, we will be okay. Thank you. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to Mike Kurtz and Inside Out Gallery. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening.